Well, it's been such a delight to me and to my wife to be here with you yesterday and today. I didn't anticipate that my coming would be on the occasion of the death of our brother Tom. But I must say that that will be, more, that will be one of the most memorable things that happened while I've been here. And to be present with this remarkable family. And to be sad a bit. But to rejoice in the life of a godly man. I know none of us, as much as we miss him, would want to call him back from what he has seen and experienced. I'm glad to be with you. I've been bragging on you ever since I was here the last time. And I'm even more persuaded and convinced that what I said about you is absolutely true. I must say that you sang those hymns like you meant it. Like your heart was in it. And so it should be. We're going to be speaking tonight about those eight Beatitudes and added to that what are called the similitudes. One, the description of kingdom citizens, and the second, the calling of kingdom citizens. Have you ever wondered why sinners were so comfortable in the presence of the sinless Son of God? The word sinner is used in an accommodative sense in the gospel record. Because everybody is a what? A sinner. But a sinner was someone who made no pretense of serving God. In contrast to the Pharisees who made a great pretense of serving God. People who knew they were lost. And they were comfortable in the presence of Jesus. It wasn't a strange thing to the nation of Israel to hear the proclamation of John the Baptist and then of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They had dreamed of that kingdom. They didn't understand it at all, and they were ill-prepared for it to come. But the thing that was shocking was the nature of the people who would be invited in. I tell this story, I think I haven't told it here before. That I was in the Hauptbahnhof in Frankfurt, Germany, back in 1958. And while I was standing there, of course, there were many GIs around that part of the country. At that time, a young German prostitute approached me. I backed away from her, and I said to her, you ought not to be doing this. I was 27 years old. I had come to Europe to find a place to preach the gospel, and acted that way. 
My face gets red to tell the story still. Jesus would never have said that. He would have spoken to her with care and concern and told her of a better way. That she was important to him. And there was things there were things that I could have spoken to her about. Why did sinners find it comfortable to be in the presence of Jesus? Because he valued them. It was not as though he was glad they were what they were, but he knew what they could become. And that's the reason he came into the world. So I'm not surprised at these Beatitudes. We've already noted the fact that they all apply to a kingdom citizen, not just one of them, but the whole of them. I want to stress tonight the fact that these Beatitudes speak about attitudes that are chosen. You don't get it by inheritance. It doesn't come in the bloodstream. It doesn't just happen to you without your knowledge or without your involvement. These are chosen attitudes. You have to decide if you want to be this way. And so as we look at them this evening, I want you to consider it, consider the things that we will talk about in that way. I've already quoted G.K. Chesterton who said, Nothing succeeds like failure. All the people described in this six or these eight contrasts, well, actually... They just look like contradictions. All of them are failures. Failure is written across the whole story. And we need to recognize the fact that we too are failures. We come to Christ because we are failures. And if we don't recognize that fact... I doubt very seriously if we ever will be very successful in following him. The Beatitudes began in this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is not speaking in the more closely described way of Luke, blessed are the poor. But blessed are the poor in spirit. This is speaking about spiritual poverty. It's talking about spiritual bankruptcy. It's talking about being absolutely flat, broke spiritually. The word that is translated poor here comes from a Greek word that has the meaning of crouching and cringing, which was the mode of the beggar. He would crouch in a very lowly method way because he needed something so desperately. And he had no right to it and had no power to obtain it. And so he begs because he has no other avenue to attain what he needs. Those that recognize the fact that they're spiritually bankrupt are the ones that have come to the kingdom of God. And so as we begin this study, I remind you that there is an empty space inside of each of you as well as myself that is God-shaped. 
and that nothing else will fill it. And when we attempt to fill it with a lot of trash and garbage, we are just working against our own best interests. I'm reminded of the language of David in Psalm 42, and we sing about this a good bit now. As the deer pants for the water book, so pants my soul after you, O God. And David speaks in a similar way in the 62nd Psalm. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. All of us have it. But sometimes we refuse to recognize it. And we try somehow to find some other way of filling the emptiness. Augustine said, and he's famous really for this statement, that you have made us for ourselves, speaking of God, and we are restless until we rest in you. So, spiritual poverty, that's where we all began. And it reminds me of the language of the prodigal when he comes back and says, I am no more worthy to be your son. We are unworthy and undeserving, but we are desperate. And he was desperate. Just give me a job. I need a job. I can't ask again for the things that you've already given. And so it is that if we want to come to the kingdom of God, this proud, self-reliant, self-sufficient attitude that is American to the core, we can handle things, we can take care of ourselves, must go, because you cannot do it. I've always been impressed with Paul's statement in Second Corinthians chapter 2 when he says, Who is sufficient for these things? And then he answers his question in chapter 3. God is our sufficiency. I am inadequate. And you are inadequate. But God is not and God is our sufficiency. But we will never be filled with God until we recognize our tragic circumstance and emptiness. As long as we think we're not too bad. As long as we feel we are somewhat worthy, as long as we feel we're somewhat deserving, the day will never come that we'll answer the call of the Son of God to come to him and become his servant. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I want to stress now this term, blessed. It is sometimes translated happy. And perhaps in some measure that is true. But happiness is a statement of the nature of my circumstance. I'm happy because my situation now is pleasant and good and comfortable. The word blessed in this particular case really is more akin to joy. Because it exists separate and apart from our circumstances. They don't have to be good. They don't have to be pleasant. They don't have to be appealing. I say to people frequently that we need to say in answer to the question, how are you doing? I am blessed every day, good or bad. Because this is a transcendent kind of comfort and assurance. 
So blessed in the sense of being accepted by God. There is no more comforting and compelling feeling than to know God has received me and I am his. And I can rest secure and confident in his love and grace and power. So blessed are the poor in spirit. And because they are poor in spirit, they would naturally reap a weep. Blessed are the mourn, those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We did some mourning today. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter. Because by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. I want to tell you what I feel. I have learned a great deal more from pain than from pleasure. Pain is a better teacher. There's a statement made in the 119th Psalm which celebrates the greatness of God's Word. It is apropos to this particular point. In the 119th Psalm, which is the longest chapter, I suppose, in all the Scripture, the writer comes to a point at about verse 65. Well, I'll make that a little further down. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. Now listen to this. It was good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Sorrow is better than laughter. C.S. Lewis once said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He shouts at us in our pain. But that's not exactly what he's talking about here. Pain comes to us unwanted. Things happen to us that are painful and sorrowful that we do not have a choice in. They come unbidden and unsought. But still we can embrace them because we know that all things work together for good to those that love God. Nobody else can embrace things that are so painful and so disappointing as we can. I always remember the words of Paul in the fourth chapter of Philippians. In nothing be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I like that expression, with all, without the peace of God beyond understanding. I don't need to know why things happen as they do. And there are going to be a lot of things that will happen that are painful and we will have no answer to the question why. But we don't need an answer to the question why because we know who's in control. And we know our relationship with God is such that all things are going to work together for our ultimate good. 
Job asked the question why several times, and God never answered his questions, and he's not going to answer ours. But he is working his great eternal purpose, which he conceived before times eternal, and is working now, even now, to work it to its conclusion. So, but that's not what he's talking about. Those painful experiences that we don't anticipate. This is a chosen sorrow. You have to choose to mourn in this case. And the choice is to mourn because of what? Because of our sins. It ought to grieve us. I remember times in my early preaching days when people would come forward to confess Jesus with tears in their eyes. And it was obvious that they felt the conviction that had been brought to them of their past failures. And so they're coming with joy and delight. It also reminds me of the sinful woman that came to Jesus when he was in the feast with Simon the Pharisee. And she knew he would receive her. She had brought a jar of precious ointment with her to anoint him. And she came and bent over his extended feet as he, as he lay at the table to eat. And as she began to anoint his feet, the tears began to flow. And in her embarrassment, she let down her hair and wiped away the tears. I think we need to be saddened by what we have done. It's not the ultimate experience, but we need to be sorrowful. Second Corinthians chapter 7 explains this kind of grief. Godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation. And it will bring you no regret. I think it's imperative that we say to people, as we said last night, that if you want to come to Jesus, it's going to be a radical change. God will affect it in our lives, but we need to be prepared for a tremendous transformation to take place in our lives and to long for it. So blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. And God will do it for sure. And then the next one, blessed are the meek. Truth to tell, when you read that passage, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, you think to yourself, blessed are the meek, they're going to get run over. They're going to get run over. And the truth of the matter is that maybe in the beginning it will happen that way. Jesus was the meekest of all men. And that didn't stop the crucifixion. Is that not what Jesus said in his great invitation? Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Meekness is not weakness. If a man is powerless... To do anything about his situation, he becomes obsequious like a slave, and he's all begging and scraping around to keep people from doing things bad to him. And he'd be glad any day to give up his relationship like this. And if he ever gets the chance, he'll take it. But a meek individual is someone who has the power to do otherwise. 
Jesus said to Peter, who drew his sword on the occasion of his arrest, ready to fight, he was no coward. And Jesus told him to put the sword up. For if you resist this, how can my Father's will be accomplished? Don't you know that I could now call twelve legions of angels? We have a hymn that says 10,000. A legion in the Roman army at full strength was 6,000 men. Sometimes it was only four or 5,000, but let's say 60,000 angels. If I had been in his place, I, bet, I think I would have found one angel to come down and take care of these people. I am tempted, but I don't have that kind of power. But he did. But that power that he had was subjected to a great purpose, to his father's will, to his father's intentions. And so he brought it under control. That is meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength. I can think of no greater strength ever expressed by a human being than the words of Jesus on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing, and they were, mer- they were murdering him without a backward glance. Anyway, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you're going to have to be poor in spirit, you're going to have to mourn, and you're going to have to be meek, and you will inherit the earth. In that connection, it seems to me that First Corinthians chapter 3 is an answer. <clears throat> inherit the earth. That sounds rather... Exciting. But what does it mean? I think Paul answers that. And by the way, the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians are some of the most remarkable passages in the New Testament. He says this in verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God. I remember the song of Deborah and Barak about Sisera. They said the stars in their course fought against Sisera. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 We possess all things because the Father we serve controls them. And His eternal purpose is being worked out by His power and by His wisdom, and it will be worked out. I don't care who wins the battles here. And we're a part of that. And we need to have that secure confidence that whatever God has promised, He is going to fulfill And that he's working to accomplish that. And that the whole world becomes ours because the world which is controlled by God is working for God's eternal purpose, fruition. That, I think, is what the 37th Psalm meant, which is cited here. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You feel wealthy? Now the next one. Doesn't surprise us. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. The word hunger here is the same one that's used of Jesus after he had not eaten 
people 40 days in the wilderness. I don't think we've ever experienced that. I've never been that hungry. People are that hungry don't think about anything else than food. They don't think about anything else than something to drink. Their thirst is absolute. And that's what Jesus is speaking here about. Better they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I stress again the fact that the emptiness that's in us is God-shaped. And the hunger that's in us will never be satisfied any other way than the presence of God in our lives. And we ought to be grateful that God cares about us enough to want to indwell us. I love the beginning of Hebrews. God who had sundry times and diverse ways, spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God wants us to understand him. God wants us to know him. It is intent, it's his intention that we should come to know him. And he's spoken to us. God has spoken to the likes of us. I don't know why. We were his enemies and we've been his enemies, so Romans chapter 5 says. We've been ungodly, so Romans chapter 5 says. We've been aliens, as as chapter 5 says. And yet God cares about us. It's incredible. But those who are going to be citizens in the kingdom of God must hunger and thirst after righteousness. What does this righteousness refer to? First of all, the righteousness of God's mercy. We can never be right with God without his help. It's not stated here. And in fact, that's not the emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount. I told you, I think I said before, that Jesus has never even spoken about his sacrificial death at this time. And he won't talk about it until a year later. More than that, the cross is never mentioned, but it's mentioned first in connection with us. That we were to take up our cross and follow him. It's later that he speaks one time about crucifixion in connection with himself. So there, consequently, must be in us a hunger for a right relationship to God. But it's obvious in the Sermon on the Mount, it's God's intention that we're going to be different in our lives. Righteousness of a practical sort will come in to inhabit our lives and cause us to be a different people. There's a demand for true righteousness, practical righteousness on our part in this sermon. So we need to hunger and thirst for that. And he says, and this is the wonderful part, we will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will receive mercy. That's my confident reason that this sermon is preached to people that are in desperate need. We need mercy. We need mercy. And that's the blessing that God grants. But Jesus' teaching on that subject has been challenging. 18th chapter of Matthew. The Apostle Peter says, How often... Should my brother sin against me and I'll forgive him? And he stretched it pretty far. The rabbinical, the rabbinical answer would have been three times from Amos. For two transgressions, I'll 
And for three, I will relent. I will not relent. And so he said seven times. And the Lord, of course, in response to that, 70 times seven. But I'm more impressed with the 17th chapter of Luke when he says, if a man sins against you seven times in a day and says, I repent, you will forgive him. And the disciple said, Lord, increase our faith. Mercy is not a statistical matter. It is a quality that's involved. And I've never seen anything more compelling than the parable Jesus told about that steward who when his master called him to account for his work, it was found that he had wasted or had taken a king's ransom. I mean, he could never have paid it back if he worked all the rest of his life. And after he had stolen that much money, if that's how, how it was done, who would trust him? But he said to this, his master, forgive me and I'll pay you back everything. Be patient with me and I'll pay back everything. I'll tell you the astonishing thing is that, that the king forgave him. No oriental king would have ever forgiven a man of that because he would have opened himself up to many another adventurer who wanted to take some money from him as well. He would have lost his head directly. This is a strange kind of king. Forgave him. And then he went out and found somebody that owed him about $18. Grabbed him by the throat and said, pay up. And the man said, be patient with me and I will pay it all back. He probably could have done it. But he sent him on to debtor's prison. And when the servants of the king made known to the king what had happened. He called him to account for every bit of what he had owed. How can we not be merciful to others if we know how much mercy God has shown us? I have lived this many years to know that God has been patient in ways that I didn't dream before. He's been patient with me until I got it right. He's been long-suffering toward me until I got it right. He has been merciful to me many times over. And blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. It's not that because we are merciful, then we owe, uh, we are owed mercy from God. It's because if we do not show mercy, we don't understand what God has done for us. We're not penitent. We don't have any grasp of the seriousness of what we've done and what God has overlooked in all His great mercy and grace. Then blessed are the pure in heart. Each one of these deserves a full lesson on them, but we can't do that. Blessed are the pure in heart. Again, that's something you have to choose. It's not something that was done for you. I think James 4, verse 8, has helped me a good bit about that. He said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And he said in the beginning of his epistle that the double-minded man never going to get anything from God. A double-minded man is a man of two persuasions. Not single-minded, not single-hearted, not genuine, not true, not sincere. This purity of mind is something that a sinner can have. When I read the parable of the sower and I get Jesus' explanation of the good soil, he said this is the good and honest heart. 
They're sinners all. They don't need the gospel that's being sown unless they're sinners and away from God. But it's possible for a sinner to have a true heart, to be single-minded and genuine and sincere. And that is what I think he's speaking of here when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You're never going to see God if you're double-minded. It's got to be, as the Texans say, the whole hog and the biscuit. You've got to give it all. You've got to be in it totally. And sometimes the reason we are failing as God's children is because we're not in it totally. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the next, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We're tempted at this particular point to think about peacemakers as those that settle disputes. That pour oil on troubled waters and get everybody straightened out and worked out. And that's a good thing to do. Uh, We're to be at peace with all people, according to Hebrews chapter 13. And the holiness without no man will see God. And in Romans 12, uh, Paul suggests that we are to, if as much as this is possible to us, be at peace with all men. And that ought to be true of us. We serve a God of peace. And so peace is something that we strive for. But it seems to me in this particular case, he's talking about a greater peace than that. He's talking about the peace that is granted by God's great blessing in the gospel. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and read from verse 20 onward. And he speaks about the peace that comes because God has broken down the middle wall of partition and of the two, one has been made. It's, it's been so helpful to me to recognize that we're in a kingdom that contains men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And it's remarkable what God has done. I don't know whether you see that here or not. Would you all be together if God had not worked? Would you be counted as brothers and sisters if God had not been involved in this process? This is marvelous. We have backgrounds that are so different. And of course, across this world, we have people that we don't speak the same language with, whose cultural situation is totally different. And so consequently, God brings people together from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and makes them one family. That's powerful. And we ought to be peacemakers in the sense that we're trying to help other people make their peace with God. And perhaps that's the thrust of it. That shouldn't change our disposition to want to make peace when there's trouble among brethren. That certainly should continue. For they should be called the sons of God. But now... The strange eight. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You would think that people like those described in the first seven Beatitudes would be welcome in this world, who would give up their rights for the sake of others, whose concern would be just that God should be glorified and that other people should be blessed who would make great sacrifices in order to accomplish that, who would be forgiving and merciful to other people's wrongs, not intent on avenging themselves. You would think that a people like that would be welcome in the world, but Jesus says it plainly, that it's not going to be that way. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
2 Timothy 3, 12. Those that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall, not may, shall suffer persecution. Jesus has been very candid with us. He's told us there's going to be suffering. After all, a kingdom that is lifted to power on a cross ought to tell us that there can be suffering in this. Persecution. And he makes it very personal in this particular case when he turns and says, And you, when all when men speak evil things of you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely, you are blessed. For great is your reward in heaven. I think we have to get ready for that. That's part of the program. Now, I've said that about these. That's an inadequate treatment of these eight Beatitudes. But get the picture. We come unworthy and undeserving. We come with a desperate need. And God is going to answer that need and does answer that need to those who come with that disposition attitude. Now, now the next verse is here in the fifth chapter of Matthew. As Jesus talks about the calling of the Christian, verse 13 and following. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, and on a, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Think about that setting on that Galilee and hillside. And these people that are gathered around Jesus, this great multitude, they don't have anything. They're not the eminent ones. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish establishment, they've been sitting around watching to see what they can catch him in and bring him down. But these people are excited. But think of the absurdity of it, that he's saying to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If I had been among the critics of Jesus, I'd have said, this is laughable. These people? These people are going to be the light of the world? These people are going to be the salt of the earth? Incredible. Inconceivable. But the truth of the matter is, they did become the light of the world and the salt of the earth. The Roman Empire will have collapsed, ultimately. Plato's Academy will be closed. The Stoics and Epicureans will be faded into a curiosity. The great library at Alexandria will burn up. But Christians will continue. That's why we're here tonight. To be the salt of the world and the light of the world. But he warns in these texts, the salt can lose its savor. And how will it be salted if it does? And if it loses its savor, it's worth nothing but road dust. We, if we're to be the salt of the world, salt cannot cease to be salt, but it can be contaminated. And if we contaminate 
our lives by things of the world and therefore cannot be the saving influence that salt brings, the preserving influence that salt brings, then we have lost the game. The light of the world, and it must be put on the lampstand. The purpose of all this, he says, is that God may be glorified. I want to say this before I conclude. We live in a world that is increasingly ignorant of the Scripture. So we're going to have to find out where people are if we're going to teach them and begin at that point and move on. You have to listen a while and find out where people are if you're going to find out how to begin to teach them. But I remember in my days, in early days of preaching, we thought if we could get people to understand that you need the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. And not only that, you ought to have elders in every church. Not only that, you ought not to be singing with an instrument. There is no evidence here whatsoever in the New Testament, and that would be absolutely true. And many other points we would make. I will tell you that if you, will, if you want to talk to the people of this generation about those things and think they're going to be influenced greatly and moved by that, I doubt that it's going to work many times. They're not even ready for those issues. They're going to have to be persuaded and convinced in some way that Jesus is the Son of God and that that changes everything. So what is the answer? He's given us the answer here. We've got to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's our character, changed and transformed by God, that is going to be first noticed by people who won't care about any of these other issues, but they see in us that disposition of confidence and that hopeful spirit in our difficult days. When they see in us such grace and such concern and such interest and such love in them, When they see that sort of thing, they're going to be influenced by that and their heart open to hear the other things that we may have to say and teach to them. So we don't want to wind up just a group of people, fine people, going through the the motions. We could do it half asleep. We want to be what God wants us to be. And when people see that and experience that in our lives, their hearts will be open to hear the good news of the kingdom of God. So, the church of the Lord is a refuge from the world, but it's also a place for sinners to come. And they should be welcomed when they come so they can hear. I've exhausted the time. (laughs) That's who can come to the kingdom. The failures, the empty, the hungry, the mourning, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, and those that are willing to be persecuted. For Jesus' sake. Are you like that? (laughs) And if you are and your life is empty. And you don't even know why you're here. And everything nailed down is coming loose. This is the answer. It's God's answer. The God that created you. The God that sent his son to the cross to redeem and save you 
And so we conclude this lesson with an invitation. Whatever you've done, however bad it is, you're a perfect candidate for the kingdom of God. And we don't hesitate to invite you to come to Jesus tonight with a broken heart of repentance, with a committed heart of faith in Him as God's Son, and with a desire from this point onward to live your life according to the will of the Father who loves you and who has the power to accomplish in your life the dream that he has for you. And if that's your desire tonight and you're ready to be baptized into Christ, then come. And if you've been discouraged as a Christian, then recognize that this thing that's happening here tonight is a part of an eternal purpose that began before time was. You were once a silent thought in the mind of God. And he dreamed a dream and schemed a scheme that there would be a people who would love him as he loved them. And who by his grace and power would be made into such people that they could come at last and live with him forever in heaven. That's the dream of God. I hope you'll make it your dream tonight while we stand together and sing this invitation hymn.